what a beautiful musical bouquet. Great way for a spring day today, May 2nd in New York City. This is Mitchell J. Rabin. Thank you, Beethoven, so much. We're going to have a very interesting show today, everyone. We are going to be starting for the initial several minutes with a good friend of mine, a lovely woman who I met at the Pachamama Alliance some years back because we both hold certain values very dear to our hearts, and that has to do with the preservation of our beautiful planet and our species, in fact, all sentient life. And Nancy Rhodes is the founder of Encompass New Opera Theater, which is in many ways an expression of that set of values that she holds and lives by. And her work, including this particular eco-film festival, music and film festival, that's taking place right now, she's going to be telling us about, and A Better World is one of its supporters and promoters, because we feel here so strongly about the work that Nancy's been doing through the Paradigm Shifts uh, festivals that's, that have been going on for some years back, and we've been part of that at least a few times, and are glad and honored to be so again. So, Nancy, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you again. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you have in store for people in this latest rendition version of the Paradigm Shifts Festival. Hello, Nancy. Are you there with us, Nancy? Aha! It looks like you are not available I thought you were nearby. You're not. So I am going to take a moment and share with you because I happen to know. So Nancy, in fact, was at a rehearsal and would have had to bow out to get on with us just now. And I see that she did not yet bow. So be that as it may, I will give you a quick version of what is going on. First of all, just a quick word about the Paradigm Shifts Shifts Music and Film Festival in general that is taking place from May 1st through the 5th through Saturday. Celebrating true stories of courageous people from around the world who are preserving and protecting our planet and its indigenous cultures, it is dedicated to increasing awareness of the connection between the environment and social justice, women's wisdom, and indigenous knowledge. Paradigm Shifts Music and Film Festival pairs compelling independent films with artists performing a variety of music and dance, from jazz and gospel to classical, folk, African, Tibetan, Native American, and new opera and chamber music. All of this is happening this time at the Church of the Ascension, which is at 5th Avenue and 10th Street in the village. Beautiful place. We were there last night for a film, the beginning of it, called Climate Refugees. So powerful. It's the kind of film everyone really needs to see to understand the true seriousness of what has happened already to date in respect to the effects of climate change on our planet, rising sea levels, extreme weather, tornadoes, tsunamis etc. Need I go on? I don't think so. 
Uh, tonight is a night off, but on Thursday evening is going to be the uh, concert followed by a reception, and it's really going to be an outstanding concert. She has some just excellent musicians that she has handpicked from sopranos and violinists and basso and sopranos from all over, and I've been to these. A Better World has helped promote, as I mentioned, uh, these festivals before, and the concerts are just <clears throat> truly heartwarming and magnificent. That's Thursday evening. Friday evening is a live Greek and Syrian music concert with a singer and pianist, and uh, combined with film called Human Flow by Ai Weiwei, a very famous internationally known Chinese artist who's lived in New York for the past many years. And, oh, he just passed this past, actually, just, I think, about six months ago. Uh, and he was very controversial in China. <clears throat> and as he critiqued, artistically critiqued, their communist way of life and the issues of freedom and freedom of expression that he experienced while living there, growing up. And Saturday, there is a very beautiful film called Aiden's Butterflies about a Japanese-American boy who started to bemoan the loss of butterflies, monarchs in particular, at the thought of further increasing environmental damage, destruction, and the like, and somehow got involved in actually making this film. So it's very touching, and it's a it's a great film for all of us, really, but for kids in particular. Then Saturday night is the final uh, event with live music again, Ukrainian, Greek, Middle Eastern music, as well as a Ukrainian violinist and a trio of short films. And they're all eco-films or related to the issues around being a refugee and social justice, including being a refugee in the United States and some of the issues surrounding immigration and the issues around that which are pressing against the good common sense and heart of so many of us. So if you want information about that, you can simply go to a betterworld.tv. It's right there on the home page, <clears throat> and you can click and get that information. You can get tickets. They're all of $15. Uh, you can spend more for the concert, but you can also get them for 15 And uh, so it's very fair price for one and all. And if you're not in New York, I know we have people from around the world listening, all the way to Australia, in fact. Uh, if you have friends, where I should say, I'm sure you have friends in New York, in the New York area, please let them know, and that way they can attend and report back to you. So with that said, um, I'm very pleased that you're here today for listening to my guest tonight, who is a colleague and dear friend of mine, Kurt Johnson. He has been on A Better World Airwaves several times, in fact, even recently, in honor of the Peace and Earth Day that we recently had in celebration of Earth Day. <clears throat> he was one with a few other uh, 
associates of ours talking about, well, the subject that we're going to really develop tonight. First of all, it's so interesting. Kurt straddles the world of science and the world of spirituality and has been one of the most articulate speakers about the relationship of the two and the way science informs spirit and the way spiritual thinking also in turn informs science. Uh, Kurt has been uh, a former monk. He has been an entomologist. He's been connected to the Museum of Natural History in New York City. He's well known internationally for both of these roles he's played, also as a comparative religionist, social activist, and as I said, former monastic. With a PhD in evolution, ecology, systematics, and comparative biology, plus extensive training in comparative religion and philosophy, Kurt was associated professionally, as I mentioned, for some 20 years with the American Museum of Natural History and also the One Spirit Interfaith Seminary in New York City, where he is on the board. Ordained in three spiritual traditions, he is widely regarded as the closest associate of Brother Wayne Teasdale, the founder of the modern interspiritual movement, and works also with the International Contemplative Alliance and Father Thomas Keating, founder of the Centering Prayer Movement, and so this is a little bit, actually, of Kurt's background and activity. It's awesome. He retired some years back, but one would never know it because he is constantly uh, furthering the conversation about evolutionary biology, about interspirituality, uh, about which he's written an award-winning book and is uh, well-regarded in all circles scientific and spiritual for his good work. Today we're going to be picking up on a theme that he began speaking about just a few weeks back on evolutionary biology and its relationship with with altruism. You'd say, well, what's that about? Is there a relationship? Well, as you listen to what Kurt has to say, you will see that indeed there is an intimate relationship. So, Kurt Johnson, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you, my friend. Oh, thanks, Mitchell. It's really great to be here. So glad. So, you know, you tickled my heart and mind recently at the Earth Day uh, celebration as well as um, on the last radio show we did together, Kurt. And I'd really like to hear you, first of all, if you would, for our audience, define altruism. Everyone has their own kind of subjective, associative sense of it, and that's fantastic. But there's actually a scientific definition that you were sharing with me earlier, and let's use that as the platform for looking at what is altruism and what is its, you could say, survival character. Yeah, absolutely. See, it's interesting that in order to study just the basic question of whether all organisms, and particularly the human organism, which is a conscious and intelligent organism, whether we are in some ways basically good, you know, in order to study that, then science had to have a way that they could metric, a def you know, have a definition that would be metricable. And so, Actually, the definition that science uses for altruism, and it's very compatible with the way spirituality would understand it, 
And that is that uh, you uh, or someone would do something for someone else or for the betterment of a group uh, with no expectation of return benefit and even with the possibility of a downside. So in other words, you can see if you were studying this scientifically and you were trying to metric it for data, you'd be looking for are there behaviors which are obviously for the good of the whole that in the context there's no consideration for what may be returned or there might even be a downside. And Mm -hmm. so actually, uh, to make a long story real short, and then we'll see where you want to go with this, as, Mm -hmm. as they studied how natural selection selects for behaviors across the whole biosphere, and that would include from, use the term lower organisms to the highest organisms, including us as an, you know, an intelligent organism. Um, Levels of complexity, you could say. Exactly. Is there mm-hmm. across all of this a metricable, provable um, evidence that, yes, um, there is behavior that's for the good of the whole and without any benefit for the return or even a possible downside, and then asking, why would that be? In other words, why would that be? Well, the way that that would happen in nature, even unconsciously, would be if there was an advantage to cooperation over competition. So basically what the modern rubric shows and I'll say more about this later because the most recent definitive books on this came out in 2015 based on all the journal research that had been done prior to these books, a very definitive book from Yale Templeton on the foundational questions of science. And the first book was on redefining natural selection. And uh, what it basically showed is that at lower levels of complexity, yes, natural selection selects for the best competitor. So within a group, within groups of individuals, competition has an advantage. But the minute that there are groups or there are hierarchies of groups, then what nature does is shifts from choosing the best competitor to choosing the best cooperator. And, of course, the reason for that would be anyone who's just listening would know that at the level of groups or hierarchies of groups, Uh, competitive behavior would be very destructive. It would be destructive actually at a catastrophic level. It would be Mm -hmm. only cooperation at those levels, this is a matter of common sense, that would would choose cooperation over uh, over competition. Now, what's interesting about that, I would just say one more thing, is that the scientist, the major scientist who pioneered this, was Dr. David Sloan Wilson at State University of New Mm -hmm. York, and he's also the Arnie Ness, professor of deep ecology at University of Oslo, Norway. He basically pursued it because of just what we said, that common sense would just suggest from just looking at nature and the balance of nature and how nature tends to always serve a whole, that this would actually be what natural uh, selection was doing. Now, the reason that it was tough to get into the rubric of modern evolutionary biology was because it had to be defined as a kind of selection which was measurable and demonstrable by science. And those two categories were group selection and multi-level selection. 
And everybody, of course, knew that natural selection selects within populations and within groups. That that was a given, and that was pretty much thought to be the norm for, you know, the whole biosphere. And so the question of whether there was group selection or whether there was multi-level selection was actually a huge controversy, let's say, in the 70s and in the 80s, up into the 90s. And finally in the 90s, the data sets swung toward you know, group selection being real, multi-level selection being real, and that survival of the fittest was true, but the, what changed was the definition of fitness, that the definition of fitness changed from who's the best competitor to who's the best cooperator. So as of about the early uh-huh. 2000s then, all the major people from E.O. Wilson to just over the whole rubric of uh, modern science, a, rede- a redefinition of sociobiology that was published by them in just about 2016, uh, actually you know, making the norm that you have in-group selection, then you have group selection, and then you have multi-level selection. Within groups, it selects for the best competitor, and between groups and in, level, and in multi-levels of groups, it selects for who is the best cooperator. So that, of so course, was a revolution yeah. Uh, yeah. because all of our politics, all of our business, all of our economics, all are of based that on the competitive based, model. Exactly. It's all based yeah, on the sure. old social Darwinism, yeah. So, it, so it, being it fit remains, sure, that's quite a nutshell. Uh, yeah, being fit yeah, yeah. remains the top, <laughs> the top point of, criteria, you know, yeah. of, evolutionary development and yet the way to get there the what what defines it has changed radically in within the paradigm which i love i love that it's a very smooth and elegant transition to a greater uh, more comprehensive understanding but i would like to come back and sort of uh, deconstruct a little bit of this idea of altruism kurt uh, in the kind of in the world context and uh, just to run a couple of thoughts by you as how this shows up in um, in society for instance um, as I hear your the new scientific definition or the definition I think of the role of, of volunteers uh, across the board uh, in any number of contexts I think of um, of martyrs, which is you could say an archetype of an extreme sort. People that are willing to give their life uh, avowedly for a cause and take my life, so to speak, um, and any number of gradations in between. <clears throat> but this just show this notion that Joseph Campbell used to speak of, which is that impulse which I'm going to definitely say is biological, I would prefer to say psychobiological, that when two people are standing on a street corner in New York City or any other city and there is a bus barreling down the road and uh, someone unconsciously begins to walk in front of it, not paying attention, the other person will grab the arm or the shoulder or the scruff of the neck of the person and yank them back putting themselves also in jeopardy. And this could be a total stranger, but still a member of the species. What is that impulse Joseph Campbell spoke about? And that is, in fact, what you are unpacking here, that impulse that we have toward altruism, you could call it, 
toward goodness, and of course a fundamental notion in Buddhism, and you could say the secularized form of it that was formulated by Trungpa Rinpoche of uh, the Shambhala training, uh, we spoke about Buddha nature as essentially basic goodness. And the supposition is, at base, that all human beings, all of them, despite their behaviors and manifestations, no matter how wily and peculiar they may be, are fundamentally good. So I just wanted to run those thoughts by you as you inspired me to speak of them, you know, and hearing hearing you out here. Your thoughts. Well, you see, this was this was the big question. And the reason that it was the big question is that, you know, our cultures globally have been looking toward phenomena from through very, very different lenses. One has been the lens of science, which has been a, a purely objective way of seeing and knowing. One has been through the lens of uh, religion and spirituality, which has been a more purely subjective lens and way of looking at things. And mm-hmm. then those became, as C.P. Snow said, what was called the two cultures. They were worlds apart. You had this gigantic yes. separation between the world of science on the one hand and the world of art and spirituality on, on the other side. Now, that has been in a huge transition in the last years, mostly because of the discoveries of psychology and neuroscience that human beings are wired for both of these ways of knowing, and it's not a matter of choosing anymore. And so even the Evolution Institute, which is as mainstream as you can get among academic uh, evolutionary studies of biology, uh, they Mm -hmm. issued a statement in the last two years, you know, don't try to choose. We are wired for both of these ways of knowing. It's both and, not either or. Absolutely. Exactly. And, so, and you can even just look at the beginning of brain science uh, at the you yeah. know the earliest stages of neuroscience is is looking at the laterality of the of the two hemispheres of the brain or their coherence. And when human beings are in a coherent state, brain coherence, and then further down the road, heart coherence, their behavior, their reactivity, their activity, their decision making their sense of compassion, their sense of intuition, sense of brotherhood and sisterhood, all of it radically changes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And see, then what's interesting is that because there was this huge division between the secular way of knowing science, the sacred way of mm-hmm. knowing spirituality, art, then when humanism arose, humanism then started to ask a middle-of-the-road question The reason I bring that up is that because it's from humanism that the scientific side then started to have to ask about values and about ethics and about ideals Mm, and ask, aside from any consideration of religion or spirituality or spiritual knowing, is there a goodness in beings and particularly in human beings simply in the way that they're put together? So... What was interesting is that humanism was kind of demanding then the answer to this question across the whole biosphere from all these data sets from lizards to birds to insects to you name it. Does Mm -hmm. it show that actually natural selection does select for the best cooperators and therefore in that sense the best altruistic behaviors? Is that happening irrespective of any religious belief, any religious way of knowing, or any spiritual way of knowing. 
And and this was actually what propelled science to look into it because science had to ask the question, even if it had given up on religion and spirituality. And I'm talking back now in a, in let's say the two or three decades ago when there wasn't a good cross conversation. Now there's a very good cross conversation yes. between science, religion, spirituality. There's also actually a new book out now called The Third Culture, and the third culture is about the bringing together of C.P. Snow's two cultures in this mm-hmm. understanding that we're actually you know, wired, wired for both of these. But what's interesting yes. is that science had to approach this question, is there goodness irrespective of any reference to religion, spirituality, or those types of um, ways of understanding or believing? And so actually all the data on which the new redefinitions of altruism and group of multilevel selection and sociobiology, and many of them were published in a whole series of articles in the Quarterly uh, Review of Biology, which then went into the Templeton and Yale book on redefining natural selection. These showed without a doubt that it doesn't matter at what level of, of the biosphere you're looking at, so-called more primitive organisms or more advanced ones, this is what's going on. Within groups, competition is, wins out, and between groups and in levels of groups, it's uh, cooperation that wins out. So that, you know, the, what that's done to social Darwinism then is huge. But like I said at Earth Day, the question is, is there enough time for that change to trickle down to the assumptions that people have on the street that run our business, run our economics, run our politics, which are like lemmings off a cliff and self-destructive mm-hmm. beyond belief. Is there enough time for us to realize that we had it wrong? I mean, we had it, actually to make a pun, well, we had it dead wrong. You mean, is there uh, enough time relative to what we're doing to our environment and ecology? Exactly. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Is there enough time prior to... Did we wake up too late is the question you are posing. (laughs) That's the big question. Well, it's very interesting. I would say that some of us, Kurt, um, and if you don't mind, I'm referring to you and me and many of our colleagues, and there are actually, I believe, millions of people who have been awake in this respect for hundreds and thousands of years paying attention to uh, systems... Um, in one way or another, and the interconnectedness of all life, um, that have been paying attention, have been um, giving the warning signs from Rachel Carson forward and way before her, in fact. You know, and then there are the rest of the (laughs) 99% or 95% that are still not quite getting it all together or getting it unconsciously by feeling a certain grumbling in their stomach and feeling like something's wrong here in the state of Denmark and something smells and we have to do something. So Yeah, no, absolutely. What, and so, see, one of the, yeah. the biggest shifts on the scientific side, or let's say at best even the humanist side, but if you look at the atheist reductionist side or even if you looked at you know, communists or anarchists or wh- whatever it might be anywhere, was the assumption prior to this was yes, people might be good, but that was swimming upstream against how evolution and biology actually operated. That the assumption mm-hmm. was that we're, that any form of yes. goodness is swimming upstream against a current yes. 
of entropy, chaos, and so on. Right. Now Contrary you understand to, the yeah. science. Yeah. Now you understand the science. Science is saying, hey, no, actually the wind's at our back. I mean, anything that has to do with goodness yeah. is in tune with what nature has been doing anyway. Now, it's kind of counterintuitive because think about it. All most of us have been aware of the so-called balance of nature. And we talked mm-hmm. about how nature was balanced and everything fit in and there was, a, there was a way that everything was taken care of for the good of the whole and all of that. But then there was yes. a schizophrenia about that, that that didn't translate into our understanding that there was a fundamental altruism or goodness in that system itself. So there's just been this, this major contradiction, and it got propelled by social Darwinism and what the politicians and the economists did with that post-Darwin's book. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, and so that, that's the question is, can that change? And it would bring, bring up the question, how could it change? And, uh, and the answer to that might be that in millennials and post-millennials worldwide, they will grow up now in a global culture which will have a different assumption. I think you remember when I talked at Earth Day, I was saying that what defines paradigm shifts is changes in assumptions, and that when you change assumptions, then whole behaviors can change. Yes. So if you look at the badness of the world, that's obviously been based on the assumption that social Darwinism that Darwinism True. was a shark tank, and that's how nature operated. Yeah. But if the newer yes. generations, no matter what culture they're in, can actually grow up feeling, no, wait a minute, things are basically balanced, good, and holistic to start with, that's a different assumption that, that then creates and it will a whole breed form of different outcomes. Right, Absolutely. it will breed different behaviors. Let's let everybody know that you are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. and also sometimes at different times and days, but you can always hear us on our radio archive at www.abetterworld.tv. And if you haven't yet signed up for our newsletter, please do so. We'd love to have you part of our a Better World community and family. Also, every Monday evening at 7 p.m. in Manhattan in the Big Apple, you can watch our TV show, A Better World TV. This past week, for instance, we had a former mayor of Salt Lake City and contender for president, presidential candidate for the Justice Party, Rocky Anderson, environmental activist, a great proponent of social justice, and a dear friend who uh, had the endorsements of such people as Dennis Kucinich and Ralph Nader and many, many others. And uh, we were airing that show again, he ran in 2012, to portray what leadership looks like, what kindness in, in a political position looks like, integrity. It can exist, folks. And it is very much in alignment with our conversation here with Kurt Johnson that, you know, leadership qualities of basic goodness and altruism do rise to the top. It doesn't always appear that way, but indeed, after all, it really does. So make sure to become part of our A Better World community and get our newsletter at abetterworld.tv. We're continuing now with our discussion with Kurt Johnson, 
scientist, former monk on the subject of of altruism and evolutionary biology. Kurt, I'd like to pick up on looking at the world through this lens historically. And yes, it's very true. You're it, it even asking the question highlights the assumptions of that we've made until now based on the new neuroscience we can come to formulate that people really are basically good. But before Darwin, let's take a look at what human history was like before that. And if you look, needless to say, we will see the archetype of the conquistador in every single geographical location from Genghis Khan to, you know, Alexander to on and on. We see the Caesars, etc. We see this idea of divide and conquer, of domination over nature, over each other, the Chinese um, uh, and Egyptian um, dynasties, etc. We see a lot of war, we see a lot of dominance, and we don't see a whole lot of peace and cooperation. So how would you answer that in light of assumptions being made at different points pre-Darwin? Yeah, I think what we have to do is we have to go pre-Darwin and post-Darwin because what's really going on here is that there has not only been an evolution biologically for all species on the planet, there's been an evolution of our species that's gone through definable cultural stages of evolution. So if you look then at uh, at spiral dynamics or integral developmental theory, or let's say the work of Julian Jaynes at Princeton, mm-hmm. they showed, yes, all of these awful things happened in the past. But if we study them in detail, there's been a gradual progression, differentially in different cultures, of the progression through developmental levels Uh, always going to higher levels of mutuality, higher levels of inclusivity, and higher levels of goodness on a step-by-step basis. Now, Mm -hmm. the big difference with, with, let's say, pre-Darwin and post-Darwin is that worldwide before science arose, we'll say around the Renaissance, it was one subjective claim or one subjective understanding against another. It was your religious belief against my religious belief, or worldwide it was a, it was a cacophony and a panoply of subjective claims, none of which could be verified except by belief itself. Now, what science was and what science is, is it says, hey, we can find external reference points, we can find testable external reference points by which we can agree that certain things are factually true. In other words, that the world is round, it's not flat, and that the sun goes, uh, that the earth goes around the sun and not vice versa. And those then are no longer matters of belief, but they're a matter of what can be proven to the collective by external reference points. So what's interesting about the growth of science and then what became you know, the Darwinian revolution and humanism was this uh, understanding that a new norm was findable by by external reference points. Now, what's interesting is that with that, there was a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That, in other words, instead of 
creating, you know, instead of transcending and including, like the philosophers say, like Wilbur, instead mm-hmm. what the people did who were uh, who were just emphasizing materialism was they threw out what had come before and tried to replace it with something that was all materialistic, all physical, you know, all object, all yes. objective knowing, and and there was and then there was no sense of balance. So what's happening now? And see, Ken Wilber really nails this. He says that the higher you go with complexity, complexification, the higher you must go with inclusivity. Otherwise, you'll have chaos. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, mm-hmm. if 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 complexification has to breed inclusivity, which it would, according to you know these laws of evolution, that natural selection is going to pick the best cooperators then you're going to actually get to this higher level of development in which uh, there's diversity and yet there's unity, there's room for lots of points of view, there's an understanding that what's important is not worldview or belief, but it's the basic way that, w- that we treat each other. And these are actually mm-hmm. the higher levels of, of, uh, of cultural development. So if you look back to pre-Darwin and back when it was one religion against another, that's called the magic mythic era in... in um, yes. Uh, in uh, in developmental like theory and it, yeah and even between fundamentalist religions today that's all still true my dog's better than your dog you know blah blah yes. blah but eventually yes. you go to rationalism and then you go to pluralism and then you go from pluralism to holistic or integral and so for all the bad things that have happened to human beings there has been this tracking toward greater inclusivity which is also then greater love as you yes. went to the higher levels of, of complexity. So that's the good news. That is. I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, it seems to me, I, I have never, of course, I'm familiar with spiral dynamics and Ken's work, and at the same time, um, I, I cannot say that I've looked at it with a true, um, worked over it with a fine-tooth comb, because I still see a bit of a zigzagging, not a clean bell curve, so to speak. And well, see, this, it this strikes is the whole me point as nonlinear, frankly. Yeah, sp- well, that's the whole point. It, it's not linear. Uh, spiral dynamics makes really, really clear that this is differential because of the way cultures are put together. For instance, uh, Don Beck, who's the founder of Spiral Dynamics, spoke at the UN a couple years ago now, and he laid out mm-hmm. spiral dynamic diagrams for every culture in the world. And he basically Mm -hmm. showed that all of the elements for this progression are there, but it doesn't take much to set them back. In other words, if you look at what Trump has done to American discourse, and Trump's not even a dictator yet, but all it takes is an emerging dictator and an emerging closed society and an emerging fundamentalism to set back all of those trends. It doesn't mean the trends aren't inevitable. It means that the trends get slowed down because of the retrenchment of the embedded, yes. the embedded old behaviors. Now, it's going to make, right. just say very, very briefly that yes. there are ways that the Bible is studied that show over and over, even if you looked at this just from the point of view of a god who's trying to propel history, he's had to do it over, and he or she or it has had to do it over mm-hmm. and over and over and over. Yes, because right. of the setbacks <laughs> and the number of people yes. that he assigned to a mission and they never completed that mission. 
Yeah. So even in biblical history, it happens over and over and over. Two steps forward. No, it's forward, very interesting. Right. Step back. Another That's step the old phrase: history back. repeats itself. Right. Exactly. It keeps exactly. repeating and repeating. You know, it's no, it's it's a very good point. Uh, by the way, just for clarification, uh, Claire Graves is the actual founder of his of uh, Yeah, he's Dynamics, the philosopher you know. but, behind. Yeah. Right, exactly. but Don Beck is the true, you know, promulgator and educator who has brought it very much into the 21st century. And, uh, yeah, God in other words, you had the, the, the show, great popularizers, just like Huxley and Darwin. I mean, the only reason that Darwin became so well-known is that Huxley became his champion. So uh, Ken Wilber and Don yes. Beck and Chris Cohen, they, they became the champions of the developmental academicians. I mean, Claire Graves and Gene Gebser and these people were, were academics. They weren't going to be out there yes. pounding on the pulpit yes. to uh, to exactly. expand that message. So it always or takes, interacting uh, with governments, you know, exactly. in the real world, so to speak, taking the theory and applying it, which Don Beck did yeah. in South Africa and in Israel, yeah. in in Holland, and more yeah. places than I would know. And, yeah. uh, and then you know, one, that's the application we, of the theory. And one thing we I'm have sorry? to keep in mind, and you and I were talking yes. actually about this earlier, is mm-hmm. that we have so many bad habits embedded in us because yes. of the ape lineages that we evolved from. And well, it's not easy for us to, when we have grown up with clan and tribe and group against group and and warfare as as a way of belief. I mean, in the magic mythic era. That's right. Uh, and a way of life. A way of life. Exactly. When church and state were the same, and it was yes. all one dictator and one tyrant against another, this yes. went on for centuries and, and centuries and centuries. So for that kind of a species to break out to rationalism, first of all, that was post-Renaissance, pluralism, yes. which was post-World War II, and now... Mm-hmm a holistic worldview, which they say basically yes. only since the 70s and 80s. Has yes. that been the trend? So these are yes. very small windows if you look at the whole history of of human humankind. And then that and the yeah. fact we were talking about this earlier too, that our species has these cognitive abilities and these technological cognitive abilities, which none of the other members of the genus Homo evidence these these just catas you know in, in a huge way click into reality about 50,000 years ago and that's also a huge you know, subject of scientific inquiry we're going to get into that and what looks like may well be extraterrestrial influence that we were speaking of earlier and i really want to pick that up but i also want to look at something else when i said nonlinear especially in light of what you're saying now kurt um i'd like to just kind of take a little bit of a trip back in history to look at where i would define holism was emergent back in ancient china their understanding of chinese cosmology Everything was connected. The medicine and the food and the movement and the worldview, everything was part and parcel of a larger cosmological system of which and from which, you could say, human beings emerged. And we were the balancer, talking about balance, of heaven and earth. But the point is 
that every single thing, not unlike you could say the medieval notion of the doctrine of signatures, had its significance in the larger whole. It was really systems thinking back originally with the Chinese worldview. You could also say the same thing uh, about even Europe um, prior to specialization. Look at Leonardo da Vinci, for instance. He was a master of all there was to master. And by the way, also in China, there was what was called the, the five excellencies, where every scholar had to be, they understood the intrinsic relationships between music and art and science and medicine and gastronomy, for that matter. It's a different perspective, holistic, truly as holistic as anything we have today. As I was saying, you know, with the European education, traditionally, um, there was also this systemic understanding that through time and specialization to the point that we have something called an eye, ear, nose, and throat doctor who knows nothing about the whole system. But if you have a problem with your eye, ear, nose, or throat, step right up. Now, this is to me a breakdown of consciousness and a breakdown of the larger you know, systems thinking. And indeed, clearly, as you're referencing, and you know, according to Hegelian models, there's a synthesis taking place where we're regaining that. But from a larger, you know, when you spoke about spiral dynamics and this kind of a tendency and trend over time to um, toward greater goodness, say, and greater systemic, holistic thinking, I guess what I'm saying is that these, you know, it's almost like history is circular. And these actual understandings were embedded in ancient indigenous cultures for the longest time, and we lost that thread. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, see, this is, there, there's a big question here that's both general and, and scientific. And so just generally, if we're on this upward trend toward higher and higher developmental behavior, if that's actually our tendency, then there will be outbreaks of that at any point in time along that tract where uh, conditions are right for those really good aspects of who we are um, to emerge. So, for instance, in integral theory, there's a thing called the Wilbur-Combs lattice, which has a vertical and a horizontal, and it says that the highest yeah. vertical possibilities are always possible because of our innate nature, call it Buddha nature, human mm -hmm. nature, at the human, whatever we would call it. But yes. this is always defined then horizontally by conditions of the time. And so whenever there have been these outbreaks of goodness, and there, there were great examples in Islam as well, um, mm -hmm. there have always been nasty people with weapons who then um, you know, set the whole thing back. That, that, that's the mm -hmm. general question. Now, the specific yes. question, though, is quite a different one, and that one is if you go back to the seven to 10,000-year horizon for quote-unquote civilization, which has been the typical one for conventional archaeology, and then you start your developmental tracking from there, well, that's, that's one thing. But 
what if, like you just said, there is more and more evidence for the pre-10,000-year horizon or pushing that horizon mm-hmm. farther back where there may have been cultures on the planet that were in those advanced developmental levels and yes. then for whatever reason they were lost and forgotten about there yes. seems to be as you know a tremendous amount of evidence now pushing that horizon back and yes. pushing the capabilities of those early civilizations uh, you know Forward. back as well and then and asking asking <laughs> yeah. exactly what you were what what you were asking and then that those yes. abilities those civilizations were lost those abilities were forgotten you know whatever the case may be and so yes. that 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 our idea of development has been skewed by this kind of false 7000 to 10000 year horizon and that yes. that's a big set of questions as as we've talked about for a lot of reasons things that are in ancient texts uh, buildings and technology from those periods that we can't comprehend how they ever did it, you know, like by slave labor, you know, give me a break. Um, yes. And that brings yes, up right. the questions. And then, and, and that now raises that, the question I think that we're going to dovetail exactly. into right now, yeah. which is one of the most fun areas to to contemplate and about which there is increasing amount of scientific evidence. You know, we can have a definite intuition that how in the world, or I should say, how in the universe are we possibly the only form of what we, rather loosely I would say, refer to as intelligent life, and in fact, have we had many visitors over the course of human life, human history, if not previous to humans on the planet. Could, I'd love for you to unpack that whole conversation, pushing back the civilization horizon question back to 50 to 100,000 years. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So there's, there's actually three at, let's say there's picture there involved. What, once, if you look now at what's happened recently with UFO disclosure, so that even at the most skeptical level of people who made fun of it or poo-pooed it, now, yeah. with all of the new evidence that's out and the new videos out from Raytheon and all, from their equipment and all that, there's no doubt mm-hmm. that there are other craft around. So then the question is, uh, does the UFO Who owns them? Mean... Yeah, <laughs> Who's exactly. got the keys? <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and particularly ahead. since the way that those are described now are pretty much consistent with the way they've been described Clear back to the early 1900s, that kind of means that the idea that someone else among us has those, in other words, it's us with the black yes. ops programs or something, makes that less likely and it makes more likely, uh, particularly if you look at the written narratives of many ancient peoples, that there has been uh, other folk that, that, that have been here. And then the question is, if if that's a possibility, then to what extent have they intervened with uh, our history? Now, what's interesting yes. about that, as we mentioned earlier, is that it wasn't until science accepted the meteor knocking out the dinosaurs and then other great extinctions caused by by meteors. The asteroid. That yeah, the asteroid, uh, whatever asteroids, meteors, comets. Um, mm-hmm. That the, that a rubric of evolutionary biology also w- was then called catastrophe, where in a very short period of time the gene pool can be radically altered by catastrophe, and it has to be built again 
from a completely different statistical base. So dinosaurs disappear, the little mammals that were no bigger than squirrels end up evolving then as the main line, and, and they become, you know, uh, what we are. So catastrophe, which didn't exist in the evolutionary biology rubric before, let's say the 80s or 90s, is now a part of that. But I think now there's a possibility with um, what I just said, but I have to add another element, that we'd have to talk about the possibility of intervention. Now, yes. the other reason that that comes up is that when archaeologists now, and these are very mainstream ones, are looking at the archaeology at the period where Homo sapiens took on this major jump in cognitive skills, symbolic thinking, technological ability thinking, projecting planning, projecting options, everything that's involved with us being a technological being, that emerged very, very quickly and with very few precursors in the archaeological record. And then particularly if you push back the horizon, it seems to appear so suddenly, even when it was side by side with much more primitive things you know, g going on at the same time. Now, so archaeologically, they have to say, well, there don't seem to be any precursors for these abilities. But now, as some of my colleagues, and I won't mention names, but once they start to look at the genome that's connected to these capabilities, symbolic thinking and technical, technical symbolic thinking and the ability to plan and project and all, all of this, when they understand mm -hmm. the genetic Abstract of thinking of, that, of one sort or another. It, exactly. They don't see any genetic precursors to it. It, comes, it, it. it happens very, very suddenly. So that creates a conundrum, at least in mainstream science, and it's basically this, is that population genetics in evolutionary biology, which is highly mathematical, it, mm -hmm. it will allow and be able to explain very, very rapid jumps in evolution if the math is right. But they're very, very rare. Now, the example I often use is the lottery. Everybody knows that your odds of winning the lottery are, like, so stinking small. And yet yes. somebody wins. You know, if you do the math, it's possible that that actually yes. does happen, but it's extremely rare and anomalous to everything else around it. So that brings up a conundrum. Either this gigantic explosion of cognitive and technological ability in our one particular subspecies, Homo sapiens sapiens, as opposed to Neanderthal or all the other ones we want to go through, um, mm -hmm. did, did that happen... Um, because of a biological jump that's explainable, rare but explainable, or, <laughs> like you were saying, if we look back at narratives in the uh, archaeological literature and other things, or did it happen by someone else intervening and fiddling with our genetics? Now, mm -hmm. that's, that's the type of thing that mainstream biologists would have laughed at five years ago. But once you open the door to the fact that we're probably not alone, then even as a scientist, you, you have to have it on the table. Um, so, and we know now, you know, what we can do with, with genetic engineering now, they just made this super beagle and all these other things they've created. It, it would not be far out mm -hmm. if there was intervention that, that right. you know, so the, the, it, it, you know. Throws, it throws the conventional into a conundrum put it that way it does it does and you know but <laughs> the conventional just so frequently is not actually scientific 
Um, and even just from the point of view of mathematics and life in the, the vastness of the universe and the thought that there could simply be this life form in one place in what is considered an infinite universe, uh, or even if it's finite, it's so enormous. It, it doesn't stand to reason. It just does not. But aside from that, as you're saying, looking at the specific jumps in mental activity and intellectual uh, acumen and prowess that would generate different types of thinking, mathematics, science, technology, even, even artistic work, as Zechariah Sitchin discussed, happened in... Um, in Sumer, in, you know, sorry, I'm not sure I have the exact uh, dates of that, but somewhere between 6, you know, 6 and 4,000 BCE. Um, and he was a biblical scholar, as you know, and he is actually citing the Old Testament as his, his map of that territory, which is very interesting in itself. Many people have interpreted um, Ezekiel and uh, a lot of the other uh, prophets and seers from the Old Testament as having borne witness to flying, fiery flying objects. And I've got to tell you, Kurt, I was introduced to this kind of thinking very early in my life, ages 14, 13 and 14, when one of the big influences on my thinking was Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Deniken. And uh, people laughed, and it was a bestseller, but it was considered basically a form of science fiction trash, really. But the reality is that he was being very creative and very productive, as far as I'm concerned, in his thinking, and open. And what he began to suppose and the different sets of assumptions that he made in that one single paperback book... uh, were have real resonance today, and he sort of, I think, um, foretold the story of what could well be the intervention, and it appears to be really sensible that there has been extraterrestrial intervention, because, as you're saying, genetics doesn't explain it, history, archaeology doesn't explain it, and all of a sudden there were these specific and major quantum leaps, you could say, in human thought and practice and civilization. And I don't think it's so far-fetched to think about our other, you know, galactic brothers and sisters of coming along and saying, hey, you know, let's let's take a spin around Earth, you know. Yeah, no, no. Michael Tellinger is another dear friend who picked up on Sitchin's work, who lives in South Africa, who's done a tremendous amount of exploration in this space, no pun intended. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and of course, the, the thing here is that, see, science, in order to remain a science, is often slow uh, because it, it yeah. insists on, um, on discipline from external reference points. So, uh, you're yes. very, very right that von Deinigen's book was made fun of it. I certainly thought it was all laughable. And yet it's closer yes. now to what's regarded as possibly possible than uh, we might have ever imagined. Now, the same was true with continental drift. It was absolutely rejected mm-hmm. by all of early science. 
It didn't. Yes. It would have never gotten into biology because all the major biologists were against it. If it hadn't have been proven by geophysics in the 1980s, it would have never come through the back door and taken over biology. Epigenetics is the other di- uh, uh, is the other example. Exactly. You had all these Just people talking about that. epigenetics, yeah. and so m- many of these people were right because they were right subjectively. They were right intuitively. Yes. They were right by common Correct. sense. Now, but science, yes. unfortunately, to be science, then and 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 therefore it's often slow. Sometimes they say it. Yes. Sometimes progresses one funeral at a time. Uh, <laughs> yes. It insists on the discipline of external reference points, and and we and we have to allow that to be. You know, it has to you know be maybe less slow sometimes and more open-minded, but. What defines the post-truth era now, the so-called Trump post-truth era, is we've mm-hmm. seen what happens when, when facts don't matter. I mean, we've yes. seen, very much like you also saw in Nazi Germany, that if you create a story that people will believe, no matter what's factual, that not only then can be in the control of a few people, but the results can be just, the results can be, Never you know, seen. horrific, and even... Truly. People like well, in James Comey's book, where he actually says that Trump's personality lacks any external reference points. It's a it's a yes. kind of narcissism that's completely subjective, only from mm-hmm. his own point of view. And so that's yes. an interesting that uh, he's kind of iconic of all of that. So what we have yes. to do is we have to let let science be science, which has to in, insist on the external reference points. Let our intuition guide that. See, what was wonderful about what's called the Popperian revolution of the 1980s and the philosophy of science, where science went from an inductive method to a deductive method, was that Mm -hmm. scientists could make gigantic leaps in theory as long as those theories were testable. Before that, they had to inch along kind of like inchworms. But when the Popperian revolution came about, they said... You can hypothesize anything as long as it's testable. And And replicatable. Exactly. I mean, that speeded up scientific discovery by leaps and bounds because it meant that really gifted visionaries, look at Einstein, could get a place at the table and things would advance really, really quickly as long as the external reference point showed them to be True, just like when they proved relativity by showing that the photons bent around the sun, those experiments that, that documented that Einstein was right. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a balance involved here. And you know as well as I do that no matter how holistic your medicine may be, if you needed something as simple as an appendectomy, you'd want a surgeon yes. who knew who knew how to do that operation. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, in fact, holism includes, talk about, you know, transcending and including, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It would be foolhardy to think about a a holistic right worldview that was, it can't possibly by definition exclude a certain, say, linear interpretation of the body as a mechanical, even as a machine. You know, yeah. it doesn't, it just doesn't limit it to that. It, right. Well, we're on the same page, Yeah, and of course, to so. show you, and this is a radical example, but how very well-meaning spiritual people can go wrong 
on yes. external reference points is that uh, I have yep. an acquaintance who, who in a case where someone was was uh, convicted in a court of law based on DNA evidence, still says, uh, I know a channeler that says that this person's actually innocent, and I believe the channeler. <laughs> I don't believe the DNA evidence. Now, that's slightly out of balance. Yes. But uh, so yes. We, we have You're to be right. so careful. We're confronted know? with that kind of <laughs> imbalance routinely where you and I come from. I know. It's uh and it's it's definitely of concern. But of parallel nature, we are looking at uh the politician who is not supposed to be a politician, who happens to be the occupant of the White House right now, who in his alternative reality, alternative facts, as you were referring to basically before, is setting up a, it's really a parallel kind of magical thinking. It's not really, both are bizarre in the same way, you know? And it there's it's self-interested in both cases in you could say a a way of the way of the narcissist and this is indeed trouble. So how do you have the an overall collective evolution taking place, Kurt? Which let's say we are all on board. You know, if we take a look at the work of Paul Hawken and what he describes in Blessed Unrest that there is a superpower that's emerging that is not a government, it's not a multinational corporation. In fact, it is us in our natural immune reaction to the sickness and the toxicity of current contemporary thinking of a fossil fuel world and, um, you know, these choices that continue to serve the self instead of the whole. How do you understand what we're saying here, that there is an overall trend in the altruistic uh, uh, direction, yet we have so many that people living lives, that you could say that greed might be the opposite of the altruist. And if that's the guy, I, I define greed as a pathology, and I think it's very healthy, ironically, to call it a pathology because that way we identify certain behaviors. Granted, this is social science, not hard, you know, science, but in the, because my background, of course, is in psychology. So it would make sense to identify a, an egregious, really abnormal behavior as greed, which we could prove has skewed the health and well-being of human beings and of society and the planet herself. So the opposite, the antidote, of course, would be altruism. But how do you account for the massive amount of greed that continues to lurk in the hearts and souls and minds of so many people on the planet if we are, in fact, on this um, biologically-based altruistic arc? Well, you know, the answer to that is actually pretty simple, and that is that we're at a, in, a, in a bottleneck. And in evolution is all about emergence. And emergence of the next stage always happens from a critical bottleneck 
which things get so constricted that they have to change. And then out of the bottleneck, however it happens, emerges then what is the next level of emergence. And what's Mm -hmm. typical of those bottlenecks, as Julian Jane said, is massive global cognitive dissonance where people don't even know what's true. Uh, the the old no doesn't no longer works. The new hasn't appeared. Uh, you know, blah blah blah. So yes. emergence is yes. very very interesting. And for instance, if you look at the Renaissance, who would have predicted that out of the Black Death and everything else prior to the Renaissance would have emerged what became the Renaissance? Now you can look at twenty reasons why the Renaissance happened. That if those conditions hadn't have been there, it 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 might not have happened. So that's the answer to that. Is that in in biological mm-hmm. evolution itself? It yeah. goes from bottleneck after bottleneck. So we're in a major bottleneck. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, David Sloan Wilson and I, he's the Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so David Sloan Wilson and I were talking about this the other night on a Zoom, and we, what we noticed that Teilhard de Chardin, you know, the Jesuit cosmologist, basically yes. said that we're going through four stages of, of genesis or evolution. So we went from geosphere to biosphere, and then out of the biosphere emerged consciousness, which he called noosphere. noosphere. And now we're trying to go from consciousness to awakened consciousness, which we would understand in spirituality as, as, as non-dual consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at that sociologically and culturally on the earth, he was basically saying um, first there was no animate life, then there was animate life that became higher and higher, you know, um, more conscious. And then you have the evolution of the individual individual realm of consciousness. But the fourth stage is the emergence of the global mind or the global shared collective consciousness. Because what he says, now this is in the epilogue to the phenomenon of man and then in his next book, the divine milieu, is that this is a psychic evolution, which is a great word to help us understand what this means. So what's trying yes. to emerge now out of the world of individual mind is the world of a shared collective mind. And, of course, as you know, many of us in these transformative movements have experienced that. We've experienced that with yes. other people and people we work with, blah, blah, blah. But Here's the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that in the meantime, the worst of what happens with individual consciousness, if you look at Trump or Kim Jong-un or Putin, these are all cults of personality. All of these trends that are around, let's say, the 35 or 40 percent that would believe Trump, if he said the sky was red, they would actually believe it because he said it. And that was the same with Hitler, same with Mussolini, same with Putin. So even if you look at, at the yes. talks coming up uh, on Korea, it's one cult of personality at the table with another cult of personality. You know, it's mm-hmm. that unfortunate right. level of lack of evolution that you have yes. both of these major leaders who are tyrants, you know? Yes. So, yes. so we're, that's the bottleneck that we're going through. So all the bad stuff, which is all personality-driven, you know, as soon as the personality's gone, um, then the cult around mm-hmm. them usually disappears, so it doesn't last that long. But, oh, the damage in the meantime, what, 90 million people in World War II? Um, yes. You know, whatever the case may be. But, at, but really from that, that you look at the bottleneck, that yeah. was the bottleneck that preceded the emergence of the global civilization. 
international yes. treaties, the United Nations, the World Court, everything now that's international trade, international agreements, none of that existed before World War II. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, we're certainly on a trajectory, and it's both chilling and warming at the same time. <laughs> How could that yeah, be? You know, we yeah. live in the paradox, and of course, you know, that's kind of the the spiritual uh, edge that we are embodying at this point in time in our in our history. It's it's really emerging from the cocoon, as you were really implying before in your imagery. Um, it's what is emergent, and it's always darkest before the dawn, you know, as they say, and uh, I think we're experiencing that right now. And interestingly, just uh, politically looking at all of this, uh, we see that there is, you said, non-dual. Here we are, through polarity, getting a chance to see uh, where we really are. Uh, many have said, for instance, that, you know, the Me Too movement and what's happened with women, the emancipation in so many ways of women is a direct result of, you know, Trump's utter flagrant disregard of women and his horrific treatment of women in so many ways. And so it's created a polar reaction. Same thing yeah. when it comes to the Paris peace uh, Paris peace talks, the Paris you know climate talks, and his appointing Scott Pruitt to the EPA. That I attended a uh, conference of green impact investors, ESG, it's called, and this group was saying that thanks to Trump. Hundreds of millions and billions of dollars have streamed into the coffers of of investment groups that are completely committed to world change and setting up a renewable economy. You know, things like this. So in counteraction, right, uh, to yep. one pole comes the other, the dialectic, if you will. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just like the the Reformation and then the Counter Reformation, yeah, it's, yes. it's like Ken Wilber. It's a subject object flip. You know, it, that's how yes. these things work. Is the the one extreme then triggers the possibility for something much faster than if it would have tried yes. to happen incrementally. So in that sense, you know, yes. the Trump as an icon is doing um, an archetype is doing a great service. Exactly. That's the irony. That's the kick in the butt, so to speak, here, you know. So th this has been beautiful. I, I, if there, is there a way for you to distill the key points? Because this dialogue, Kurt, is, I feel, so seminally important because it really shifts the consciousness of the listener to understanding this notion that has been embedded in our spiritual teachings and wisdom traditions for so long. But now it is gaining, as you were saying earlier, of course, a scientific base through neuroscience and showing that there is an actual biology behind basic goodness and an evolutionary cycle toward uh, ever-grading, ever-increasing ever, um, altruism that is showing us that uh, that that 
bonding and cooperation and love. And I love talking about oxytocin as uh, the way into our future. And, I mean, the body is actually set up for love and for hormonal release that will continue to create greater bonding and love and compassion and affinity between people. And that's, we're at this new, you know, cutting edge of understanding the relationship between spirit and science. And this is, I I feel a beautiful neuroscience is providing one of the great stepping stones for that to happen all the more intimately. Um, Could you leave us with some thoughts about this like new you know this new bouquet around the human enterprise yeah absolutely i what i would say is that you know as we said evolution is a matter of emergence and it's emergence and new emergence and before every emergence there's there's a bottleneck and there's a great unknown of what will come out of everything that's involved in that bottleneck and then what's uh, involved with then what emerges. Now, if you look at what's actually then emerging as the hub of the new consciousness globally, it's everything that has to do with uh, holistic understanding. And so if that yes. holistic understanding, which is about interconnectivity, reciprocity, mutuality, is like the hub of a wheel, then the applications of the hub of that wheel are like the spokes coming out of it, or if we were using your metaphor, if we were grasping that bouquet of flowers at the stems with our with our fist, then coming out of that, of course, is all of these different flowers that are, you know, you know, expressing themselves, as you said, as as the bouquet. And what that means mm-hmm. is that the basic elements of that new paradigm, holism, interconnective, mutuality, you know, kindness, love, reciprocity, those will occur along every spoke of that wheel, uh, social justice, environment, ecology, governance, uh, no matter what area of culture you want to look at or sociology, it it will emerge according to the basic principles of that new new worldview. So that's really Mm -hmm. what's happening. And so if you look across the whole world, like all the books that are being written, there, there are books being written in every field about what are the implications of this new holism. It's really as simple as that. Yes, yes. Well, it is really, ultimately, it is uh, extremely uplifting uh, because it gives a, a contour to all of human history and civilization as moving toward and building toward some kind of, you know, apotheosis, some kind of um, acme of our of our evolution. And uh, even though we can see things and we can then see things in in context, right? We can see that there are these setbacks, there are these, but we are ultimately moving forward on the path toward realization. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I also wanted to say if if people were noticing dog background noise, we never have dogs here. So whatever brought the dogs today, I have no idea. But we never have dogs here. So if those were disruptive at all, I apologize. But Oh, no worry, no worry. They suddenly came from nowhere today. In addition to my barking, no big deal. <laughs> well, 
Kurt, as always, it's been such a pleasure. It's just something I can go on and on with you about and, you know, banding about thoughts and moving the conversation forward. And I was very pleased and honored, uh, my God, was it a year and a half or so ago that uh, you with others, uh, Tanya uh, Wexler, um, convened uh, the panels on altruism at the Society for Ethical Culture and um, yeah. I had the pleasure of being on one of them among... Yeah, I think and they're all on video. They're all on the altruism them. channel at YouTube, by the way. Great. Why don't you tell people that so they can go and tune into all of Yeah, you can watch all of those videos. It's about three hours worth of these wonderful panels where we talked about the application yeah. of altruism across everything. Uh, just go to YouTube and search for the altruism channel. And that'll take you to the altruism channel. You'll see a picture of me and David Sloan Wilson, and and then all of those videos are exactly. there. Um, Beautiful. Much of what I'm doing Beautiful. now is all at uh, www. Yes, please give us Unity. a little taste. Yeah. Sure. I, um, with everything I'm doing with so many wonderful colleagues globally, it's all at www.unity.earth. Very very simple, gigantic website with uh, all kinds of things that are going on, you know, all, all around the world. Uh, I host a program on Voice America that's also linked there called The Convergence, and it's actually exactly what it says. It's the convergence of thought leaders. Again, every field imaginable from neuroscience to evolution to governance to ecology to business to yoga, um, you're going to recognize a lot of the people on this show are big household names in the thought leader area. So, And we had over 100,000 listeners in 2017. So it's quality material. And then we're also editing two magazines now, two digital One of these magazines. days I'll be invited to that, Kurt, I believe. Uh, you that will. The, uh, you will and you are. In the uh, yeah, yeah. field, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. No, please go on. Sure. Well, I'd love yeah, to. Yeah, so the two yeah. magazines are also they're digital magazines, easily searchable. One is called The Convergence. So just, just look for uh, Google Convergence Magazine. It'll come up on the ISSUU platform. And the other one is Light on Light magazine, uh, and those will come up very easily at Google. One's all about spiritual practice and all about the waking up phenomenon, the subjective way of knowing. The other one is all about the growing up phenomenon, which is building the world that we want to see, and it's more heady and more academically robust and uh, uh, you know and different in that way. But it's uh, it's a nice balance to the other one. So that's what we're doing. You're doing such phenomenal work, my friend. I love it. I love it. And, of course, we are engaged together in FIONS, the Friends of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and we're always doing interesting, fun, you know, forward-thinking work there. And, well, you know, you and I are so connected in so many ways, we can't even begin to uh, put our fingers on it. But uh, I I love knowing what you're doing and, and keeping abreast as best I can of all of the tentacles you have to the United Nations and everywhere else. And, well, I guess that goes for both of us. So, Absolutely. Thank you again. Yeah, this was great fun. Work. Absolutely Definitely. appreciate it. A lively, lively conversation. <laughs> and more to come. Great, Kurt. Thanks again. We'll You're welcome. You soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Kurt Johnson, as I wrote, Scientist, entomologist, in fact, former monk, uh, such an interesting man. I, I just love him and have great respect for the work he's doing and the way he's 
furthering the conversation about what is possible for human beings as we reach toward our super consciousness and the name of the person I was seeking as he was speaking about Teilhard de Chardin was Sri Aurobindo, who was having similar conversations with people back in the 19s and 20s in India and around whom Oroville was built. And uh, just there are this just shows that there have been people throughout history, um, way back as well as more modern times that have been spinning off and helping pull us forward into the uh, great abyss, into the great evolutionary cycle where human beings need to get quickly, as Kurt was basically saying, uh, if we are going to get through this current bottleneck wherein we have jeopardized, so seriously jeopardized our own habitat our own ecosystem of which we are an intimate part but haven't really realized it quite the way we need to collectively. So anyway, I want to just thank you all for listening. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. You know that we are a nonprofit of 501c3, and we so appreciate your generous donations, your altruistic donations that help us uh, survive and sustain here at A Better World. If you want any of my coaching, consulting, and counseling biofeedback services, uh, certainly get in touch at 212-420-0800 or my email, and I love to get your feedback. Uh, please keep it coming, mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net. And I know people who are listening from all over the world, from Australia to South Africa to the UK, and it's just wonderful, just wonderful, and we so appreciate your attention and that you select us to spend time with. So on that note, I look forward to seeing you all next week. Music.